Hello, I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995. In this podcast series, you've come to expect a deep dive into a topic with faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who've established themselves as experts in their fields. Not too often do you hear profile stories of our alumni through this podcast series, but today you're going to hear about someone very special and highly respected, especially in the Latino community. Welcome to the Learning Together podcast, part of Trinity University's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni. Today's conversation features Trinity University's Associate Vice President and Professor of English, Dr. Michael Soto, visiting with Trinity alumna Dr. Ellen Riojas-Clark, class of 1974, about her life and career. Dr. Riojas-Clark is an internationally renowned scholar and cultural authority. In this episode, she discusses her time at Trinity, her career in academia, contemporary art, and the best pan dulce in San Antonio. Dr. Ellen Riojas-Clark, I am so delighted to be here with you. Likewise. Let's start. You began a truly distinguished career in higher education as an education major here at Trinity University. Can you tell us why you chose Trinity and what the campus was like when you were a student here? Well, it was in 72, 73, or 73 and 74. I already forgot. A Methodist, and I think that most of us who are Methodist and native-born San Antonians always would come to Trinity. So Trinity's had a long history of having Latinos especially, that came from San Antonio and attended Trinity way before Trinity was where it's located now. So it's historically, it's, it's there. Several uncles, my husband's side, my husband, my sister-in-law all came to, to Trinity. That was one of the reasons and the other reasons that I got good scholarship and was able to attend. Great. And, and from here, you went on to earn a PhD in curriculum and instruction from UT Austin. So you went from a small liberal arts and sciences setting to one of the largest public research institutions in the world. What was the transition like for you? Well, let me back up a little bit as to what Trinity did for me. Because Trinity was, I thought, a, a pivotal moment for me in terms of my academic decisions of what I was going to major in and so forth came in thinking, you know, I'm going to go into education and teaching. And so at that time, John Moore was, was the chair of the Department of Education. And most of us who were in education did our student teaching in the Alamo Heights school districts. And uh, I remember being placed in a class, at uh, early childhood class, because I spoke Spanish. And they had a lot of children who came from Cementville, which was a precursor to what is now um, the, what's it called? The quarry. The quarry, and that, that's the name it had before, but it was always known as Cementville. So a lot of those children came from this really enclosed neighborhood that was there and would go to one of the schools. But being in the school, I realized that learning, just knowing Spanish was not sufficient to be able to teach children. And so that started me on a, on a, on a different quest. But I'll, I'll, at the same time, Trinity was pivotal in the fact that I had never, and you as a literature professor will appreciate this, had never read much Latin, any Latino literature before then, actually. And I took um, several classes with Dick Woods or Richard Woods, who was a, a professor of literature, and, and I think he was in the Spanish department. 
if I'm not mistaken. And that was such an eye-opener for me because he introduced us to so many coming-up authors at that time, the journals that were starting to come out, uh, Slan and so forth. And so it's very interesting to see that a white professor who had a real deep interest, he always traveled to Mexico, had a deep interest in Latino literature. So along with that, I, I took many courses in Latin American literature and, of course, um, literature of Mexico and so forth. And that sparked an interest for me. At the same time, Trinity at that time was largely white, and but there was this wonderful group of people. You have to understand, I was a non-traditional student because I married one month after I graduated from high school to my parents' horror and, um, and started college, you know, late. And when my, my two daughters were already in kindergarten and first grade. And um, so it was a, a, a big eye-opener for me in meeting other Latino students. I grew up in the white part of San Antonio. And, um, you know, we were seven, seven um, students in my high school that were Latinos. So never having a lot of exposure to anything other than what I grew up in. And so meeting kids, fellow students who were in, in the arts, particularly in the arts, and then in public policy with Dr. John Lewis was a big, um, uh, again, eye-opener for me. And so met a lot of, a lot of uh, young people who were involved in beginnings of the Chicano arts movement. And that became, again, a very, very uh, crucial thing in terms of my development. But after leaving Trinity, uh, UTSA had just opened up, the University of Texas at San Antonio, and it had a college or a division um, in bicultural bilingual studies. And so I went there and in one year did my master's and was able to develop even, you know, more, more in-depth courses with people such as Tomás Rivera and Frank Bino and um, José Limón and people like, like that. And then went on to Trinity. So, I mean, I'm sorry, went on to UT Austin uh, for the Ph.D. And yes, it was, I, I think, um, a, a big shift. Um, but the biggest shift was having to uh, commute from San Antonio to UT Austin. There was no other four-year, there was no other um, doctoral granting institution south of Austin. And so the only way to do that was to, was to um, uh, commute. And that was interesting. But there again, I continued. I got my um, PhD in curriculum instruction, but also in cultural studies and took you know, fascinating courses with, with Américo Paredes and, and Rolando Hinojosa, a lot of people of that nature also. So that continued the development in the cultural studies farming. As I'm listening to you, I keep thinking how you're, you're naming so many of my intellectual heroes who I never got to meet. So I'm, I'm very jealous. Isn't that wild? <laughs> you've you've um, been rooted throughout your career then in San Antonio, but from here you've published, I guess, hundreds of scholarly articles yeah. and a half dozen books and supervised many dozens of dissertations. Um, 
but you've also emerged as one of the most unique public intellectuals that I can think of working in media as diverse as children's television, art exhibitions, theater. It seems like you've done it all. Can we chat about some of the highlights from that public side of your intellectual life? Sure. And I think part of that is that my research was along the areas of identity. And so for me, um, again, uh, having that background as to what makes successful students or successful people is people who are very rooted in who they are. And they, the stronger your identity is, and even the strongest your ethnic identity is, leads then for you to be able to, to have success. So I, that's, that's my drive. My drive is that I think everybody should become aware of who they are, that that cultural identity is just paramount to them. I know you come from the Valley, and where you grew up, everybody was, I guess, Mexican-American, right? Just about. Just about, and people spoke Spanish, and people ate food that was rooted into culture. And so for me, even though I grew up in San Antonio, that is considered South Texas, and I never knew that until I was 40 years old, that it was considered South Texas, San Antonio was segregated economically. And so the North Side didn't have Mexican restaurants, had one Mexican restaurant, did not have panaderias. So you didn't have that, that um, uh, touch all the time with that part of your culture. And so I think that that's the drive. So when Maya and Miguel came about, which was a show for tweeners. I didn't even know that, that was a word. Those are the kids that are going to be 11 before they become teenagers. Um, and they wanted to do a show. It was a huge, it was a huge project, $21 million, which in those days was a lot, lot of money. And, um, and the show was to be rooted in Latino, in a Latino family. And, um, and by the way, you can call me Abuela Elena because <laughs> I think that my lasting legacy is that I was able to name the grandmother after me. <laughs> so that, that was kind of neat. But the reason for that show, um, PBS show, and it was 63 or 65 episodes, which is long, long running, was that we were able to work in the cultural aspects of everyday life, and uh, and 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 raise it to a level that was really, I think, uh, very unique. And when we did an evaluation uh, all over the United States about the show, do you, the kids, do you know what they really loved about that show? And that was that Abuela Elena would call her grandchildren Mijito and Mijita. And for some reason, even though they might not have understood what it meant, I think they just liked the sound and the love that was exhibited when the grandmother would say, mijito and mijita, simple. They, they heard their own grandmother, I'm sure, in that voice. Yeah, but, they, but I'm talking about children who are monolingual English speakers. Oh, I see, okay. Yeah, no, the, of course, the bilingual yeah. children or the bicultural children loved it because then they recognized themselves in that grandmother. But for the other kids, what they loved was just the sound of love that came through. 
So it's talked about the universality of something so simple as a linguistic term, a linguistic endearment. And I think that that, that um, show did, did a lot. Of course, I had to convince the university that doing, I was a cultural um, uh, um, advisor, whatever you call, whatever my t- t- title was, um, that this was like writing a huge book because every, every single show I had to review and, and talk about the development. It was like writing a book. So I think that the show um, really impacted, even though it didn't have a long, long life, but it showed me that the, that that public arena had to be, had to be, have a, a big stage not just a stage of San Antonio, but a wider stage to reach as many kids as possible. Well, I used to watch that show with my older son oh, really? every week. And um, I used to, to mention to him that when we saw your name in the credits, that that was the person that he met at Mitiera restaurant, <laughs> the same person whose mural we sat under. Wow. So tell us about, about the American Dream mural at Mitiera. How did that come about? And and what was it like to, to sit for that and be a part of this experience that people from all over the world get to enjoy every day? Isn't that astonishing? And I think it's astonishing in the mere fact that it was one person's idea. One person's idea to put up people on a wall that had significance to him and to the other people that attended Miquera. And um, he's an artist, you know, Jorge Cortez is an artist, and he just envisioned that this was a great vehicle for people to understand that there were many, many people in San Antonio. And of course, it's just a, a small a small piece of who we are in San Antonio. And so for me, it's interesting that people do recognize me, even though I have gray hair now. And so that is always astonishing. And then to have former students, of which I had hundreds of former students, taking their pictures by the, by the mural. But I remember that, that day because um, I, I forgot what the event was, but it was to acknowledge somebody that had come into town. And I remember your son being very small and Selena introducing me to him. Right. Yeah. Now he's taller than both of us. I know. It's incredible. <laughs> incredible. But that led me then on to the other things, such as the tamalada, that, um, you know, not having grown up with tamaladas and then uh, seeing, you know, the, the magnitude of this family collaborative effort. Um, then I t- took the idea to, to the Guadalupe and, and said, you know, I can't do it at my house anymore. It's, and so we started doing it at the Guadalupe and then, in, of course, came, uh, asked Carmen Tafoya to join me and we did the book. And uh, of all the books that we have written, that I have worked with, that's the most popular and so I, I might have, you know, done a lot of textbooks and so forth, but this one is the one that most people will read, and it has meaning for them. And again, it's a meaning of something that they never 
that they never gave credit to. The Stamalada is a magical event that, that you host. So we did it at, at uh, Guadalupe for about 10 years. And I remember in particular one little boy who must have been six, and he comes to, up to me afterwards and he says, oh, I'm, I know everything about tamales because I've been coming since I was a baby. And so now I really can tell people about how to make tamales. And he was just so proud of himself. And he brought me a lollipop. And I thought, that, that's such a wonderful medal to get. And Well, and I have no doubt that he's going to continue the tradition well into the future with his own family. Right, right. And I think the relationship of the tamales to our cultural history and our cultural being is so important because people don't realize that, you know, the tamal has such a long history, the first fast food ever made, you know, and uh, utilizing the corn of the Americas and and um, ecologically it's the best thing to use because you use an ojai, so the recycling of, of materials is one thing. And then, of course, the sound of the molcajete that you can, you know, sound out some rhythms to, jazz ones if you like. Uh, but you're using, you're using items that are hundreds and thousands of years old, and you're eating a food that basically is not very much different from how it was done then. And so I think that's the magical part that people all, all of a sudden realize we have a very rich history. And so for me, that's the purpose of the tamalada, to build upon that self-awareness and the building of, of a cultural identity. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to the conversation with Dr. Soto and Dr. Riojas Clark. Well, speaking of cultural identity, one of your other portraits by our mutual friend, Cruz Ortiz, is soon to be hung at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Can you believe that? I, I can believe it, to tell you the truth. Oh, wow. When can we expect to go visit you in Washington, D.C., or at least your, your visage? There. I think it's in like 2021. I'm, okay. not, I'm not quite sure just when. But, you know, it's a nine-foot-tall portrait. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's huge. It's huge. I'm 4'11", so it's like, oh, my goodness. And then what's so funny about it is I think the other thing I'm known for is that I love tequila, right? So Cruz had me put, along with all the books on the floor, he had the, the bottle of tequila right next to it. And I'm thinking... My mother, who a good Methodist, would have had a heart attack if she had known that. Well, Singleton's portrait of George Washington is only his his bust and head, so the tequila bottle's probably <laughs> lying there on the floor out of out of the frame. <laughs> That's true. That's so true. 
Yeah. Trinity has a Latinx undergraduate student population of just about 21% these days. It's a bit more than when you were amazing. here. It's amazing. And that, that means we are in the category of emerging Hispanic serving institution. What advice would you give to people like me who are looking out for our students, especially in the area of culturally inclusive pedagogy, um, so that we can do a good job serving not just our Hispanic students, but, but all students of Trinity going forward? I think that's probably the most exciting piece of data that I have heard. It's almost unbelievable that 21% of Trinity students are Latinos. That's incredible. So what does that do for a campus? I think what it does for the campus is that, well, you already know, you know, one quarter is, is, uh, is very, very diverse in terms of, of um, the Latino background. And maybe they're, they're not all Mexican. They come from all, all kinds of backgrounds. But the other is that I think Trinity, like all of the other uh, four-year institutions in town, need to realize that even though they serve students from all over the world and all over the United States, they are situated. The, the situated context of Trinity is in San Antonio. And San Antonio is Mexican in its nature and its identity. And that, that our history here is so, so rich. So what should that do for Trinity is permeate everything here not just for the Latino students, as you mentioned, but for everybody, for people to understand the richness of why the Trinitonians who came from wherever they came from, Wesleyans, came down to San Antonio area to, to establish the school is because, might have been economically better for them, but it, it is because there is a situated context here that gives it richness and beauty. So I think that that in terms of pedagogy for, for, for professors and for the students, it's the pedagogy of understanding that it is inclusive and that it should be one that reflects and uh, builds upon all of the stories and the history of, of where they, they are and how that perspective allows them to permeate everything else. And it's like we say in Spanish, cada cabeza es un mundo, meaning everybody has a very unique perspective and way of looking at the world. And all that can do is enhance other things you do. So do you teach just about the pyramids in Egypt? No, you teach about also about the pyramids in Mexico and Guatemala and so forth and textiles. So, I mean, I think that the cultural history and richness of the Americas should permeate every discipline that that Trinity has because we're, and I'll say a we because I am an alumni, we are preparing students to go out in the world and to deal with diverse groups. And, and, and you can only do that when you have a, a real sense of who you are or where you've been and where you studied, that that should, that that should have built upon that, that perspective that you might have and widen your worldview of how you deal in different cultural uh, 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 beings. I remember early on at, at, at Trinity being amazed when hearing that 
in the teaching of Spanish, people were encouraged to watch the novelas and that the novelas was a, a, a natural way to acquire Spanish. That was inclusive pedagogy because not only were you hearing the, ling- the sounds and, and the linguistic use, but you were also looking at the cultural use. You know, when do you slap a man three times on the back when you greet him? Or do you slap him five times? No, it's always this one, two, three, you know, boom, 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 when you hug somebody. That's having cultural knowledge. And, and it also is understanding that, that the, the kiss, the abrazo, is part of that. I know that now at times it's a little more difficult for the physical um, uh, connection sometimes, but it is a cultural attribute. So I think that Trinity, uh, by where we're situated, right here on Hildebrand and so forth, to understand that we're all part of the big city and that this big city is part of South Texas. I mean, that was a big eye-opener, like I mentioned before, just to know that you are living in South Texas tells you something. So professors coming in need to be aware of where they're teaching and who they're teaching and why they're teaching them. And that there are many, many um, other ways of teaching that can be uh, implemented in classrooms. Well, Ellen, I saved the hardest question for last. Who makes the best bundles in San Antonio? (laughs) My new book, right? Well, if you want good, good uh, campechanas, which are those really crispy, crispy ones, I like the ones from Bedoy's on Hildebrand. And if you want the best reposteria, the tiny one for little tea parties, La Poblanita and Salsamora. And then if you want some really uh, interesting, different kinds of breads, Mi Tierra has a fabulous display. And I just interviewed their big panadero who doesn't like to be interviewed, but had the most wonderful conversations with him. And I've collected over a thousand names of pan dulce. So I shared some with him. And I was so delighted to see that he's making some new breads and putting them out there. But I think one of the things for me about pan dulce, and it goes back to the movie Coco, and it goes back to the Aztecs, saying whenever... A name is lost or a concept is lost. It's gone forever if you can't name it. So for me, seeing that there are really over 2,000 or more names of Pandulce, and we only maybe have 30 or 40 Panaderia, we don't want to lose all those names because behind all of those different kinds of Pandulce is a story. You know, who that Panadero was that decided to to make the concha. The concha is probably the most popular uh, bread there is, and I think most panaderias make very good conchas. And, um, but who decided to do something different, or the panadero now who, who took a donut and put that concha topping on top of it, or even the one in Mexico who lately just put peyote, ty- peyote topping on, on the concha. Pandulce is, is not stagnant. It's like language. It evolves. So every, every panadero has a spirit that creates and wants to create something new out of something that's basic. So to answer your question, every panaderia in San Antonio has a unique thing that they specialize in. 
So the secret is to go try them all and find the best one. <laughs> Sounds like good advice to <laughs> me. <laughs> Dr. Ellen Riojas Clark, thank you for continuing to teach and inspire. You're quite, quite welcome. And thank you for being here, continuing it here. Thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast. I'm Nathan Cohn. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.